The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision. The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. These leaders of industry are the best at what they do in their chosen field, but all have one thing in common. They are passionate about doing things the right way. They are not-for-profit pioneers. They are good governance experts. They are social entrepreneurs. They consider financial and social investments thoughtfully for the long term. Kerry got on the phone. I was just brought in to fix this place. It was my first day. He gets on the phone and said, how's it going? How's it going, son? Have, we, have you fixed it yet? I thought, jeez, Kerry, it's 15 minutes into the job and he's, he's ringing me. Uh, anyhow, that was interesting. Be inspired to make a bigger difference in the things that matter. Proudly presented by Ethical Partners Funds Management. Well, our guest today is Mr. Chris Cuff, known to many of our listeners, I'm sure. So just a short intro, Chris has decades of experience in building successful wealth management businesses, most notably, of course, Colonial First State, which he joined in 1988. He was instrumental in taking the company from a startup operation to becoming Australia's largest investment manager with over 1,200 people and managing over $70 billion by the time his 14-year tenure came to a close. Chris then joined Challenger in early 2003 as CEO. In 2006, he left his full-time position at Challenger to team up with the not-for-profit microfinancier Opportunity International Australia. He's now involved in a portfolio of activities. It's actually hard to keep up with what he's involved in. I think I've got this right. There's a number of directorships, investment committees, and in various roles assisting the not-for-profit sector. So just specifically, he is the chair and founder of Australian Philanthropic Services, known as APS, and also heads up the foundation there. He's the former chair and current investment committee member of Unisuper. He's the Chair of Hearts and Minds Investment Limited and Non-Exec Director of Global Value Fund Limited, Antipodes and Argo. He's Investment Committee Member for the Paul Ramsey Foundation. He's the Founding Director and Portfolio Manager of Third Link Growth Fund. And he made sure that I put this in the CV. He is involved with um, two private debt companies. He's a Director at Venture Capital and Realside Capital. So we're going to talk a bit about that today as well. So welcome to... Um, one of the early editions of the podcast. My name is Matt Nicard. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Ethical Partners um, Funds Management. And this is the Good Investing Podcast. Chris Cuff, welcome. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. <laughs> now, can we start in 2006? Now, when you left Challenger in 2006, you said that you were fortunate that success allowed you to have choices. So I'm really interested in some of the choices you had at the time, because I did read somewhere that you even considered joining a regulator to fight corporate crime or maybe even join politics. Um, I'm just hoping you can describe what was going through your mind at the time um, regarding the choices that you had. It seems like a really important time and a really important turning point for you. Yeah, it was. I had a um, blank canvas, so to speak. I was very fortunate that, that I was financially secure and I'd had a, a really good career to date. And I thought, oh, gee, I wonder you know, perhaps I could do something different. And the uh, the idea of, you know, maybe joining a, a regulator to 
for uh, fighting corporate crime. It was more, I thought, oh, maybe the police force needs more people that have come from commerce and can work on things like cybercrime and, and, uh, and sort of uh, white collar theft. But once I found out you had to actually put the uniform on and, 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 uh, be a traffic cop for a while, do the beat before you could do that. It uh, put me off, which is a shame because I thought they needed more people like that. And I have thought about politics from time to time, but I, I think my skin's a little bit thin and I, I wouldn't like the 24 by seven uh, grilling, I think, which is a shame of that system. The other thing I thought about doing quite seriously uh, was to be a, uh, a wealth advisor because I do enjoy dealing with people and uh, I understand money. Um, but anyhow, I, I landed differently, but all those things did go through my mind. Mm. Um, you, you took a, a trip to Nepal, I think, when you were quite young. Um, did, did that have a big effect on you? It did indeed. Um, yeah, I went to uh, to do a track around the Himalayas when I was um, about 20 and uh, it had a big effect because you saw there, like you do in many developing com- countries, just the huge uh, contrast between the rich and the poor and uh, I remember it, it one um, one day, one particular day actually. I went and bought. Uh, I went and looked at street stalls, and there was something I was interested in. But in the end, I didn't end up buying it. But a little kid of he must must have only been three or four years old. Then followed me around for four or five hours, begging me to buy something because it was his dad's stall. And uh, and that was just so pitiful for me to see how desperate people were. So it, it had a big influence. Yeah, look, when we established the, the Ethical Partners Giving Fund, the Tatra Giving Fund, we we, we took our kids to Cambodia and um, we, we saw a lot. Um, you know, we hoped that that had an impact on our children, um, certainly had an impact on us and was one of the, the drivers to setting up the fund. So I, I, know, what you, I know what you mean there. Um, so, so going back to those career choices, um, the, the path you chose was with a microfinance provider. Um, Opportunity International. Um, what, what was the attraction there and how did that come about? Well, it was a funny story. It wasn't a straightforward story. I had been um, a supporter of Opportunity International for some time. And as you say, they're a microfinance provider. And I had um, travelled with them actually to look at various of their operations uh, in both India and the Philippines, which was really, really interesting. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe I could join this group. And I ultimately did, but um, maybe you don't know this, Matt, but I lasted one day. <laughs> I decided I decided I'd made a mistake, not because I didn't like the group, but when I when I thought about what um, they thought they wanted me to do and really analyzed it more, I think I was being slotted in to be the fundraiser for the organization. And, and that's not really what I wanted to do. So it was one of those ideas I fell in love with, but probably um, didn't think through the consequences. But that was interesting because course, uh, your first uh, speaker on this podcast series, Michael Trail, uh, I immediately that day, I rang Michael and uh, I'd met him once and uh, basically came up to him and said, I want to work for Social Ventures Australia. And uh, and I said, I'll work for free for a while and you can judge whether I'm adding value or not. And um, so I did that for three and a half years and, and formed a very close relationship with Michael. But Social Ventures Australia mm. really suited me because it was uh, people ostensibly from the business community who had come together to try and help um, not-for-profit organisations do their thing a bit more effectively and efficiently and and help the the sort of early early startups um, do things a whole lot better. So it was great, a really good experience. 
So, so what'd you what'd you learn out of that? So the second crack um, lasted more than one day. What, what was the what was the big takeaway <laughs> that you think of now that you know looking back on that that time at SVA? Well, it did have a big influence, but there's some there's negatives in there too. But negatives that I learned from. So what I came to understand was the charitable sector. So which I like most people, I wouldn't have known much about. But very quickly, I came to understand there were over fifty thousand registered charities. Uh, about half of those, you you got a tax deduction if you gave to them. Um, many of them were doing the same thing. There was a lot of inefficiency, uh, lack of structure, um, uh, a lot of um, founder syndrome, so people starting these things up left, right and centre and, and really not being able to move the organisation f- forward and take their hands off. Um, and I also learned, you know, the role of the philanthropist First, the government, you know, the government does fund a lot of the charitable sector, but it's normally that part of the sector that's much more mature and, you know, is a sort of mainstream uh, pursuits. But philanthropists tend to, um, they tend to finance the startup ideas, new ideas of tackling things different. And that's essentially what Social Ventures Australia was was doing with these groups. So, so I sort of learned the importance of the philanthropists for new ideas to come through um, and uh, also the inefficiency of the sector. I often said to people it was it was like looking out at Sydney Harbour on a on a calm day. You just look at the water and everything looks great. But underneath, it's uh, there's things going on everywhere. And in the case of the social sector, there was a lot of chaos. But it didn't always mean the business type thinking could fix that either because one of the big takeouts you work, work out pretty quickly is that the output from the charity sector is not the same as the output from the business sector. Business sector works on dollars as the output and, and ratios and uh, returns on capital, but the charitable sector, you're trying to judge whatever they do to see whether they achieve that, and it's normally not linked to dollars. Mm. Yeah, and 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 with regards to SVA, I guess you, you got access and exposure to a number of not-for-profits, learned a lot about the sector. Uh, did, was that in your thinking when you, when you started Third Link? Growth Fund, or was that separate? No, when I started, so Third Link Growth Fund is a fund of funds, Australian equity fund. And I started that when I was working at Social Ventures Australia because I thought, gee, I wonder whether I could, you know, I'd come from the investment world. A lot of people knew me. I had, I think, a reasonable amount of knowledge of that sector. And I was interested to see, could I put this sort of fund of funds together and give the management fee that came off it to charity being Social Ventures Australia was the charity it was aimed at at the beginning. And uh, I did. It worked successfully, um, although I must say it was um, unfortunate timing because I launched it in two thousand May 2008. And if you remember when the GFC started, it was within uh, sort of days of that. So it was an unfortunate launch time, but, you know, it turned out to be very successful. And I learned a lot about um, the charities again, because these days I support a range of charities, not just SVA. And I've come to know those organisations extremely well, uh, being a long-term funder of them. Now, I don't think there was actually another product like it in the market. Um, to my knowledge anyway, there's a few now which are involved in others as well. Um, so it was very innovative at the time. I'm going to give it a plug as well because performance has also been terrific really when you look at um, the year to December 20, so last calendar year, 
kind of delivered 17%, you know, almost 10% above benchmark um, at almost every other period since 2012. It's it's outperformed as well. So, so what are the characteristics of a good fund manager? I mean, I must admit, I loved your recent article in Cufflinks, now renamed Firstlinks, um, on that um, because that's it's really around picking the best managers to to perform in that fund of funds, right? Exactly right. And most people will say if you run a fund of funds, it's very very difficult to beat the benchmark. But yes, Touchwood, I have beaten the benchmark fairly uh, materially since the fund began. Actually, it's um, it's been quite incredible. But I do look for things that are different, perhaps to what the uh, scientists. Uh, do. So I, I look, I don't really care about a manager's style. Uh, I don't care whether they're more large cap, small cap, growth oriented, value oriented. I'm really interested in their ability to achieve alpha, as in outperformance of an index over uh, rolling five year periods. And I am uh, true to my word when I say rolling five year periods, because I think most um, investors or or fund managers, they might all talk long-term, but there's very few that genuinely are. So I can pick groups as long as I think they have the ability to create uh, material alpha. So I, I look for material alpha to me before fees is around 4% per annum. If I can get that, uh, uh, then I'm extremely happy. And there's just not many fund managers that can do that. The type of fund managers that I look for um, that I think can achieve that. Well, certainly I look at their past track record, but it's those that tend to have more concentrated portfolios. Uh, very, they invest very different to the index. So they're index unaware, uh, agnostic. Um, you know, if you look at the Australian stock market, we have a lot of uh, our stock market in, in banks and miners, and I can be with managers who have no banks and no miners. Uh, I, I don't care less about how they want to do it as long as I think they're capable of doing it. So they're a couple of the, the things I really look for. And, you know, I look for managers who really, what I, what I say, uh, swing the bat. So they give it a go, apart from being different from the index and, and concentrated, uh, and sorry, um, uh, you know, mainly different from the index is the key thing, concentrated portfolios, but their, uh, their stock selection, how they do it, uh, and how long they'll hold a stock for is all really important to me. But yeah, I, I don't like classifying managers in, in tight boxes. There's just great managers to me are, tend to be sort of strange people, actually, <laughs> slightly. I don't, I don't want to put the whole investment community <laughs> yeah. off, but they're just very, very focused. They absolutely eat, sleep and drink investment management. And uh, and those particularly who work in small boutiques often get paid from performance fees. Uh, so they, they have to perform to, to make money. So that's good. And in my case, my, my fund, the various fund managers underneath, uh, all, um, work for, for, in, for my fund for no fee. So they refund their performance fee and management fee. So it makes, it gives my fund a good leg up from day one. Excellent. It's also given away $14 million. I looked at last count to various charities and I think your donations are running now at a half a million bucks a quarter which, uh, as you uh, said before, is 100% of management fees. So so I guess it's a pretty compelling proposition from a good investment point of view, going back to the name of this podcast, get a return for your money, management fees that you pay, in inverted commas, go to charity. Um, what a model. 
Yeah, look, it's a, it's been a, a win-win, but it was also always important to me to make sure the investment performance was very solid. I didn't want this as a sort of soft touch, you know, um, charitable thing only, and and it had to be good. So whether people cared about um, the charitable sector or not didn't matter. If I could get them a a, a good return, then that's that's been. The, the name of the game, which which I've managed to achieve, which is great. Now, one of those charities is Batia, an, an organisation that deals with young people's mental health awareness. And I know you've um, come to know um, founder Sebastian pretty well. Um, in fact, I think he helped you move house or something. Uh, Rumour has it the other day. We needed another pair of hands. Um, now, is it is it true when you when you first backed? Um, Batia through Third Link, it was recommended internally that maybe the organisation wasn't a terrific fit for the criteria that that was set, but it's gone on to to thrive and do well. And you you did back it early, maybe contrary to some of those um, some of those thoughts. Is this an example of sometimes you've got to go with gut feel and experience in making those kind of decisions? Yeah, exactly right. Um, Batir was an interesting uh, charity dealing with mental health issues in young people, uh, which you know our society is is uh, rife with mental health issues in young people these days. I heard um, when Batir had just started, I heard Sebastian speak on stage somewhere. It was on a Sunday morning at the Orpheum Theatre at Neutral Bay. They use the theatre for other things. And anyhow, he gave a speech about this organisation he was he just started. And I was really inspired by the guy more than anything. I thought this guy's going to make it for sure. And really the advice to me was it was so small and startup that, you know, maybe it wasn't a good use of funds, but I, I decided I did want to back him. So uh, once he got off stage, I went backstage and talked to him and, and uh, you know, that's where the story became uh, started. So Third Link was the major funder of Batir mm. for many years. Uh, Batir is now uh, quite a uh, sizable not-for-profit organisation doing great stuff. Um, we still support them, but we're no longer the major funder. So it's become very uh, successful and I'm very proud that Third Link and its investors made that happen. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm similar. I'm similar story. I've, I've been on the board there for nine years and um, really got involved post seeing one of those talks. I just thought this bloke, uh, there's something pretty special there. And I think as maybe you talked about with um, investment managers and fund managers, you back the people and um, often get the results on the back of that. Yeah, early stage stuff, whether it's in business or or not for profit, I think it's all about the the founder and uh, their energy and their vision. And if you can if you can get hold of the right people there, it's it's a good ride. Sebastian's a great guy. He now runs. He's now switched back over to business. He now runs mm-hmm. a uh, a drone company, uh, which I'm an investor in, and it's doing really well as well. So we, he's a jack of all trades. He is. Um, he is indeed. Now I'm going to move on to another area of investing here, and I must admit I was slightly surprised to see a reasonably high allocation to private debt in the APS portfolio, but I think my surprise is driven, well, I know it's driven by ignorance of the sector. Can, can you just talk a little bit about the sector, um, what attracts you to it? Um, educate our listeners, private debt, sure. how does it work? Well, to start with, the, it's important the context I invest in. So the APS portfolio, so just to clarify, that's Australian Philanthropic Services, which is a not-for-profit helping um, philanthropists. We run what's called a public ancillary fund uh, as well as private ancillary funds. The public ancillary fund currently has about $150 million in it, and it's a fund 
that is there uh, to invest in a long-term way. So we get um, we get solid inflows into the thing each year. We we people make donations to charities from the fund, but that generally is about no more than about seven or eight percent per annum. Uh, and the money's just extremely sticky. So it's sticky and uh, from that point of view, I think long-term. So when I think of true long-term investing and I look at a uh, the complete array of investments, one area that I've come to know well is this area of private debt. So by its nature, private debt means it's not public debt, so it's not traded on a market. Uh, and it's, it's uh, so it's not like a, a traded bond or uh, corporate debt, uh, large corporate debt. Um, it tends to be uh, debt that is put together for smaller companies, and they tend to be companies that the banks won't back because uh, either they're too small or the banks can't make enough money out of it, or uh, it's in a, uh, a niche that is um, the bank just doesn't have expertise in. And what you tend to find is the people requiring money in that area, some of the things they do are extremely secure and, and they're happy to pay a large premium to get, to get debt. Uh, one good example, you'd be aware of, uh, research and development grants. Um, so in Australia, if you're a small business, you've, in, you qualify for an R&D grant, you fill in a form, you lodge it with the government, the grant gets paid. There's not a panel there assessing whether they, they want to pay the grant or not. It's a bit like getting a refund on franking credits. You just fill in the form as long as you've done it correctly, you'll get it. So we, as a private debt, one of my companies I'm involved with, we um, uh, often the small business, um, they want the cash from the grant quicker than when the government actually pays it. So we essentially go to them and say, if we assure their grant is legitimate and we get a, a big accounting firm to look over it, if it's legitimate, it's been lodged correctly, we know when it's going to be paid, we'll say to that small business, how about we buy that grant off you, uh, the, the payment of it. So we might give them 90 cents to the dollar and they're happy with that. They get the money a few months quicker and generally being a small business, they you know, cash flow is important. Important. And that's that's an example. And that type of thing is extremely, extremely secure. I've never seen mm. a bad debt in that area. Another area of private debt that uh, one of the companies I'm involved with works in is um, medical claims insurance. So if you have a car accident, uh, you go to a lawyer, you then, you know, maybe having a stoush with an insurance company, the insurance company, assuming it uh, agrees, um, it's going to pay out on that, but there's a time gap again between when the payment happens and and the needs of the client. So they're often quite happy to sell things like that too. And and again, it's an area I've never seen a bad debt in. But there's there's lots and lots of things. There's people who are developing property that they can't get short term finance for, and some groups might be willing to pay for say a, a twelve to two year period, twelve month to two year period. They might pay you know thirteen, fourteen, fifteen percent because it still works in their metrics. And um, so it's this it's a it's an area of the market that's unusual. You need very good people working there, very knowledgeable. And it's, yeah, it's an area I've, I've really come to uh, understand and think it's a disproportional return for the risk involved. That's the key thing. So a lot of these things, if they were rated, I think they'd be rated extremely high, highly. And as an investor, I might be picking up eight, nine, 10% per annum. 
uh, and that's great. And because they're sort of short-term debts, you don't have to worry about the long-term survival of a company so much. You're just seeing what's the activity they're actually doing in the short term that they require this for. So I, I invest in a lot of that. There's there's a growing number of private debt opportunities around. You've just got to know where to look and you've got to be a sophisticated mm. investor also. Yes, yes. And and, and what was the what, what was the bad debt level or performance like? I think I know the answer to this because I know how well APS, the APS um, portfolio has performed. During COVID, was there an impact? What did you uh, see? In, during COVID of, of our, we have about 30% of the APS foundation invested in private debt of one type or another. Uh, and we had, we had one uh, security that has not done as well as we'd like, but we think we'll, we'll get our money back on that. Uh, and that was only a minor part of the portfolio. The rest has performed fantastically. And there's an array of, uh, there's an array of, um, uh, security you can go for in these things. Like there's some private debt we're in, which is, it's still private, but it's way up the top of the credit curve. So senior secured debt. There's a great group I work with called Revolution Asset Management run by Bob Sohato. Um, we invest in that, in that fund. It pays around 6% per annum, you know, so in, Term deposits at sort of next to nothing, half a percent or whatever. If, if you can get six percent per annum and feel you're uh, very secure, uh, that's great. So that's the type of stuff it's about. But normally, you know, the, the negatives are liquidity is low. You normally got to hold the debt till maturity, uh, and or if it's a fund, there are some private debt funds that go on perpetually. There's normally a lockup period for a couple of years to start with. So it's not it's not for everybody, but it really suits APS Foundation. Again, good long-term investing. Well, look, it's been noticeable as uh, you know, our foundation or our giving fund here at Ethical Partners is through APS and you get the statement and in a way the investment earnings are a bonus because it just gives you more money to give away. Yeah. So that that's what drew my attention to it in the article that you wrote. Yeah. So um, it, it, look, it's been great. We've got more money to give away, partly because of the return that you've achieved in this asset class. Yeah, well, the the foundation actually, I just came from a board meeting of the foundation before I got here today, and its uh, its performance um, since it began eight years ago is is around about eleven percent per annum, I think, um, which has been fantastic. But you've got to invest long term again, and that's we can invest in things that others just won't contemplate, and also it helps that I work. As an investment professional in the industry, because uh, I can sort of seek out opportunities that maybe others wouldn't find as easy, and and I also get to know who I think are the really good fund managers around. So right. it's it's great. I really enjoy it. Thanks, Chris. Now I'm going to shift gears here to some general questions that we ask um, all the guests. Um, well, all you're the second guest, but um, we will ask all the guests, and we have asked all the guests on this podcast on things like leadership, investing, and other things generally. So, so the most important aspect of good leadership t- to you that is often overlooked. Look, I, you can read textbooks about leadership, um, and you know, I guess you you do have to know some of the theory, but but I've always felt if you can walk the talk as a leader. People just notice it. So it's, you know, if I'm the leader, when I was leading Colonial, as an example, which was Colonial First State, which is a fantastic company, but, you know, people watched what I did a lot and how I acted and how I spoke and was I um, was I open with them. I think one of the really important things as a leader is to tell things as they are. Don't sugarcoat things. 
you know, mo- uh, plenty of companies only ever talk to their staff about good things. <laughs> I used to talk about bad things. Uh, it wouldn't worry me to uh, turn the ship 180 degrees quickly if I thought we were on the wrong track. Um, but it's just making staff through your actions and words really aware of where they work, what the objectives were. So I think that sort of the involvement thing is is what I think uh, some um, leaders or sort of people trying to aspire to leadership, they really should work on. And and look, you know, if you're a leader, uh, I've never thought the leader's chair, um, you're, you're smarter than the next guy and you should never think of that. You know, maybe there's a bit of luck, maybe whatever, but, you know, stay reasonably humble, keep your keep your feet on the ground, respect everybody. Um, it's amazing what people will do when they feel respected and involved at work. Hmm. When that organisation grows, maybe maybe um, Colonial's an example or, or others, how do, you, how do you stop the culture of that organisation from becoming institutionalised and, and kind of dampening that entrepreneurial spirit and that innovative thinking as the company gets bigger and bigger? How, how, do, you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, well, it's, it's certainly not easy and I really do admire some of the big companies of the world, whether it's like the big techs, Amazon or or um, yeah, Google or those, they seem to still have an entrepreneurial spirit about them. Look, I, I used to think the key thing to stopping all that was to make sure the lines to between making a decision and implementing it were still short. So don't have committees after committee after committee, um, set tight timelines again, tell people what's going on. Um, uh, make sure you employ the right people. So I would say, you know, Colonial First State, the people who reported to me, were similar in the sense of they were sort of no bullshit, um, didn't, they weren't institutionalised type people. They liked the excitement of a smaller enterprise. So even when I left Colonial with 1,500 people or whatever, I still thought of it as a small company, but it, it was obviously getting big. But we could do things quicker than others because we had um, our people were sort of geared for doing that and, and geared for making decisions even if some of those turn out wrong. You know, it's like a batter. You don't go out and get a century the whole time. But if I could trust that my management team, you know, had a high hit rate of good decisions, then I'm not worried about the bad decisions. Um, that's just that's just life. Where some groups that become over-institutionalised, they've got to analyse things to death um, before they'll do it. And, you know, there's committees and strategies and papers and, and you know, drives you sort of nuts. <laughs> So, so, so you mentioned there, you know, hiring good people. So, if you've got two equally qualified candidates, how do you determine who to hire? What's the what's yeah, the X factor? It's a good question. If you had two equally qualified, well, then you might um, look at. Well, you definitely look at their character. Um, like I say, if if I was trying to find people with attributes that I think uh, make good leaders or good people, people, well, you can sort of judge that a fair bit if you talk to them for a while, have a meal with them maybe, uh, talk to their, uh, talk to people who work for them. That's probably what I'd, I'd do. If you then had two identical people, well, then I might start to look at, okay, are there personality traits that uh, would complement the team more? Um, some of some of your listeners might have heard as, uh, of Myers-Briggs. Um, there's a, a sort of uh, – 
I'll call it a test. It's not a test, but it's like a questionnaire you fill out that sort of puts your um, attributes of you as an individual into one of 16 squares. Uh, and it's really revealing about people. There's no right or wrong, but um, in an organisation, you probably want people that operate in different squares. You don't want everybody in the same square. From a, a different perspective, can you recall something you've you've failed at and what you've learned from that and maybe how it's set you up for success later on? Uh, yeah, I, w- I would say um, uh, when I moved from Colonial to Challenger, um, uh, I took on the role of CEO of Challenger, which was um, major shareholders was the Packard Group. Um, and I really think I didn't do a very good job as a CEO in one sense. And I, I did, actually didn't stay there that long, if you might remember in the CV. I found that being the CEO of a listed company was, uh, and, and Challenger for a short period was, was a top 100 company when I was there. It's now it's, uh, entrenched as a top 100 company. But I just found, um, you know, my day was occupied by, I had, Analysts who expected me to talk the company up, I think, the whole time, which wasn't in my DNA to, you know, I say things how they are. Uh, everybody wanted short-term decisions uh, or short, short-term short plans. I'm a long-term planner. Um, I didn't like dealing with the media. I never have. Um, there's very few of the media that I find actually report the news instead of making the news, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, I didn't enjoy the uh, listed company board, um, the governance type issues, which can overwhelm you sometime. And then after you do all that, you're supposed to do out of work engagements uh, after work. And, you know, it was just in the end, I just thought I'm doing everything other than what I wanted to do. Um, so I moved on pretty quickly from from that. Uh, so I, in, in some sense, was it a failure? It was more, I was out of my comfort zone and I probably shouldn't have taken on the on the role, but I learned a lot from it. I learned a real lot. And in those days, Challenger was actually uh, on the ropes. It nearly went under. It was nearly closed by the regulator. So I was, I was fighting fires as well. <laughs> it was, I, I, uh, I really had my hands full. That's very honest of you. I think people will look at you and your CV and go, wow, that's um, incredible, which it is. But that, that's, I really appreciate you running through that because you, you, you can never fully know a role, I don't think, until you're in there and you, you do all the best work you can in DD and you get in there and it's not 100% guarantee. So that's that's really interesting. I'm sure some listeners can, can yeah. identify. It was also very, I say, Matt, it was also very interesting, uh, inverted commas, working with the Packers. You know, they were, they, they, were, they did business in, in ways not everybody else does. So that was a whole uh, eye-opener too. Particularly, I spent uh, a reasonable amount of time with Kerry Packer, who's, who's since de- departed this earth, but he was a character like you wouldn't believe. In fact, I remember my first day at work, which was I had to go up to the um, uh, the fancy building, um, Renzo Piano building um, 
in Macquarie Street, anyhow. Uh, anyhow, I went into my fancy office. Just as I got to the office, Kerry got on the phone. I was just brought in to fix this place. It was my first day. He gets on the phone and said, how's it going? How's it going, son? Have, we, have you fixed it yet? <laughs> I thought, geez, Kerry, he's 15 minutes into the job and he's, he's ringing me. Uh, anyhow, that was interesting. Yeah, no pressure. No pressure at all. Um, can you remember the, um, the best investment decision you've ever made? And well, uh, how did it work out? And what did you learn from that? Yeah, well, I guess in a relative sense, because, you know, investment decisions when you're young are all big. And when you're older, they just tend to have more zeros on them. But yeah, my best personal investment decision was in the very early days of my career, after I left chartered accounting, I worked for a company called Sydney Fund Managers. And it, it developed a number of listed trusts that invested in the Japanese stock market. And uh, Rene Rivkin, who's a colourful character since past, uh, he rated one of those. Uh, and we, so we had to wind it up in the end. Um, and that trust had options that were in the money. And I swear I'm about the only person that must have known they were in the money, even though I worked in the organisation. I was very aware of, did, did I have inside information or not? But I checked, I certainly didn't. And I just saw those options as, uh, which were listed on the stock exchange. It was just like free money because people were valuing them at zero because the trust was winding up, but mm. they were actually in the money. So I just <laughs> sat there and bought as many as I could as a, uh, as a, um, early twenties person. And, uh, I think I tripled my money in, in about three weeks and thought that was pretty good. Well, that is pretty good. I guess the, the lesson there is, is, do the work. Do the work. Do it was work. pretty basic. Yeah. And it was interesting because some people must have thought if I cast my mind back that that still had currency exposure or whatever, but the, the portfolio had been wound up and we'd told the market and it was back in $8. And actually, I used to go home at night thinking, I'm sure. Am I doing something wrong? Am <laughs> <laughs> I doing something what wrong missing? here? What am I missing? Yeah, this is yeah. like shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> well, I'm on the back of that. Well, what are you? What are you um, committing incremental capital to right now? Uh, well, per- personally, yeah, still a fair bit of private debt stuff. But but over the years, as my investment horizon, as I've learnt more about investing and can make sure I also have a long term investment horizon, I am invested in a lot of unlisted. Uh, securities, generally through somebody managing them. Mm. Um, I'm a big fan of the Airtree Group run by Daniel Petrie and Co. and, and uh, a few of the private equity funds out of there. And uh, I've had really solid returns from those and 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 like them. But you've got to be you've got to be patient. You know, most of those private equity funds have got a 10 year um, sort of time horizon. But you know, I was lucky. My first venture capital fund through Airtree. Uh, that Airtree fund happened to have a bit of Canva in it. And if your readers, uh, listen, read the paper, if your listeners read the paper, um, Canva's gone up about 150 times, uh, when, when, uh, when we put some money into it. And, um, you know, it's probably going to go up by 300 times by the time it's finally listed. So, but stuff like that, you have to have a, you have to have really smart, people working for you that you judge that are experienced and smart and you just have to be patient. It's a lot, there's a lot more opportunities there than the listed market, I feel, but um, there's plenty of accidents that happen in the unlisted yeah, market. Yeah. Look, I can just almost hear our listeners just jotting all that down. Um, now we're going to wind down just with a few other general questions. What are you reading right now? What book oh, are you look, I'm just not a big reader, but when <laughs> I do read, uh, and that's because I've read so much for 
the, in my investment role. Yeah. So I read a lot, but I don't mm. read much for leisure, but I'm trying to read more. Oh, well, I read nonfiction. I'm not a great fiction reader. And, uh, and I'm reading about emotional intelligence and love and all this relationships and all that soft, gooey stuff. There's a lot of learning to do there for everyone um, that will never end, I'm sure. Um, now, I've got another question for you. And I've got to admit, I've pinched this off another podcast, as I said, the last edition. Um, the other podcast has um, got slightly more listeners than our podcast, but nevertheless, um, what advice would you give your 21-year-old self? Yeah, um, I would say um, your 21-year-old self needs to know the importance of education. So I know there was times when I was at uni when I was thinking, oh, maybe I should drop out because I was always had this sort of – uh, A-type personality, itchy, scratchy type of entrepreneurial, you know, but I'm glad I finished my education and I'm glad I got, um, I qualified as a chartered accountant, which I had to do more study for after university and just sort of slowing down, getting that behind you was really important and working and, and my, yeah, I would, I would, yeah, that's what I would, would say. But I guess I did that. So did I need to give myself advice? As I say, I almost quit uni or the chartered accounting degree and, and glad I didn't. So stick it the study for a while is the main advice. Yeah, look, CA is not easy at all. So I think it's a really valuable qualification. Um, what wakes you up at night? Uh, uh, wine. <laughs> I think you're going to say I drink too much wine. arthritis. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm pretty fortunate. In, in Earlier in my career, I had, I used to suffer a lot from stress in the job and all that stuff. I remember when I first started in Challenger, you know, I used to, it was just, uh, I felt like I had too many things and I'd worry all the time, wouldn't sleep well. But these days I, I don't, I, I sleep pretty well. There's not a lot that um, worries me anymore. Maybe I'm old enough uh, and, and again, I'm sort of fortunate in a career sense and in a financial sense that uh, I shouldn't need to worry. Um, so, yeah, not, not a lot, but it mm. took a lot of training to get mm. to that point. I, I really have worked on myself over the years to try to mm. be at that point. That's good advice and good indication to people, I think. And one person who's inspired you the most in any aspect of your career so far? Oh, Paul Keating. Okay. Oh, I'm a lover of Paul Keating. What inspired yeah. me about about him was the way that in a very short period of time, uh, he and plenty around him uh, were able to to change this country mm. in, in yeah, rapid fire time. Ad- admittedly, the political landscape was perhaps a, a little easier and, and for a time they, <clears throat> that group had power in both houses of parliament. But you still needed uh, someone with vision and someone who could speak well about things. You know, there was there's nothing better than than list, even to this day listening to old um, uh, YouTube's or podcasts of Paul Keating ruffling up feathers of people opposite mm-hmm. him in Parliament House. So yeah, he's 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 had an influence, a big influence on me. That really to say, look, I'm on this earth for a short period of time. I'm going to get things done. Mm. Look, you preempted um, the final part of this. Um Podcast, and this is a game that my nine-year-old likes to play with me. You can play it for hours and hours, but don't worry, there's only four or five here. <laughs> Goes, Dad, can you play either or with me? So I'd say okay, and um, and, and we we play and we just keep on playing. But anyway, there's only a few here, so I'm going to give you two choices, and the first thing that comes into your head of these either or choices, and I think there's one here that's going to be fairly easy. I already know the answer. Um, Paul Keating or 
Peter Costello? Paul Keating. <laughs> I think Mr. Costello might have been a bit too generous on the super system somehow. <laughs> um, EBITDA or net profit? Net profit. Uh, people don't understand DA is actually a cost. <laughs> um, EBITDAX, EBITDA. Um, yeah, the, anyway. Um, value or growth? Value. Unlisted managed investment trusts or listed investment trusts? Uh, unlisted managed investment trusts. All right. To know a lot about something or to know something about a lot? Definitely to know a lot about something. And I say that to younger people these days too. Become a master of one thing is great. Don't flit around. You know, a lot of people say you're going to have multiple careers, multiple things you work on during your career. I'd say, well, if you found one that you really like and you became a master of it, you'll get a lot of enjoyment out of that. Mm. Ryan Pappenhausen or James Tedesco? Definitely Ryan. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, All right, last one. If you could play one golf major, would it be the Open at St Andrews or the Masters at Augusta? I'd love to play the Masters at Augusta. You reckon you'll get there? (laughs) Uh, Well, I've been to the Masters and watched it, but I don't think I qualified it. I don't know anybody who can get me on. (laughs) (laughs) That's it, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. You are one of the ultimate good investors. And um, look, it's been fascinating. So I really do appreciate your time. I've loved it, Matt. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes. And for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au.